Thanks, Nick. It feels so formal. I'm not that fancy. I'm <laughs> really not. Um, I'm really pleased to be here. I'm really thankful for this opportunity and really thankful that I get to be um, here with all of you as a member of this community. I do a lot of national organizing and training. Um, I know and there's like pillars between us. Don't let it stand between us. Um, and so when I get a chance to do local work, place where I live, I'm really excited. Um, I'm also really excited because my kids are less needy now, so I can do that kind of stuff. Um, so that's a good thing too. That's really positive for me. I don't know. They kind of fend for themselves with a bowl of food and water that I leave on the floor. <laughs> it's fine. They haven't died. They're cool. Um, okay, so tonight we're going to have a conversation, a super quick conversation, about race and intersectionality. Um, when Nick and Wendy contacted me to have this conversation, um, I was really pleased and excited to think about what it would mean to examine or have an opportunity to examine with other people what power really looks like in order to do not just better racial justice work, but great social justice work all over the place. Um, and I sometimes describe that as saying that like, I've done a lot of work in feminist circles, which are predominantly white feminist circles that don't know how to talk about racism. Um, or I've worked in labor where people don't know how to talk about racism. So we can have like a women's day on labor when all the women stop working at a particular hour, except that's when white women stop getting paid and not when women of color stop getting paid. So there's, you'll see that all of this stuff is happening all the time. Um, and in a country that um, is obsessed with race and how it does, how we do life, we spend a lot of time not talking about it and certainly not talking about it in a really complicated way and how it interacts with other forms of oppression. So we're gonna do that in 30 exciting minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be like the best 30 minutes of your life. <laughs> My shit is tight. I swore I in, in church. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the, but the first thing I wanna have us do is I wanna have you just do super quick introductions. We don't have a lot of time I would love to hear who all is in the room, but we don't have the time for that. But what I would, would like you to do is just um, turn to somebody next to you. If there's somebody next to you who you don't know, that's great. If you have to be a threesome, that's fine. Make it work. Um, but just tell each other, who are you? Like, what's your name? Maybe where, where in the city you're from. Um, and what's one thing right now? These are difficult times. But what is one thing right now that makes you hopeful about racial justice work? What is, what seems hopeful, promising, like a beacon right now um, in pretty challenging times? So, and you're only gonna get like three minutes. Um, but do it quickly, it's gonna get noisy, so I apologize for the folks who um, have, are challenged by the auditory, um, just of the challenges of that, but we're in a space and I wanna make the most of our time. So, three minutes, please make sure everybody gets a chance to talk, if you're a pair or in threes. Okay, go for it. All right, I'd like to invite you to wrap it up. Wrap it up, come on back. I'm sorry if not everybody got a chance to share your full life story. We'll do life stories at another open table. Um, but at least you get a chance to know who's sitting around you. Um, and I'm, I wish, again, that we could do a full introductions of everybody, but um, maybe we'll do another workshop where we're going to do that. So I wanted to give you all um, a framework for how the conversation is going to go. I am um, a grassroots organizer. I do, I've done lots of years of grassroots organizing. I don't, I'm, I don't like to lecture. 
Um, that's not my jam. I don't do that. That's like conference circuit. Look at my, my case study. I'm not really into it. Um, what, I, what I have designed for tonight is for us to, to talk a little bit about some concepts to help us think about power and identity. And then I'm going to have you all talk to each other about how that shows up in your life. And that's all we're going to do tonight. It's not a big, um, you know, like, listen to me yap at you all night long. That's really not the idea. But I really, because what I want is, as an organizer, for people to have some tools to think about your life, the world, a new pair of glasses to put on that help you see something that maybe you didn't see before, or that gives you greater clarity on what you already know, or is, is a renewal of something you already know, um, and that gives you a skill or a tool to use when you leave this room. I find that often trainings and workshops um, really aren't worth anybody's time if you can't figure out how to use it when you walk out the door. Like, it's great. Like, if we could just educate each other and that was going to make racism go away and oppression go away, we would have had that shit done a long time ago. <laughs> right? Like, you could just train and train and be like, oh, my God, I know so much. Stuff's different, but stuff isn't different. <laughs> so, um, so the idea is to give you a tool that you use in your life to change the outcomes of things you experience in your life. That's the whole point. So that's what we're going to do tonight. The other thing I'm going to have us do is I'm going to have the conversation be about equity. So I'm assuming that um, folks, this is a fairly self-selecting group that would come to a conversation about race, have probably heard about all kinds of things like racial equality and racial diversity and all that kind of stuff. When I talk about race and I talk about social justice, um, I often frame it almost exclusively as equity because equity is a way to help us talk about power. So I want to give you an illustration of why this matters, why it's not just a linguistic thing, it's not just vernacular, but it is in fact a framework that helps us see what's happening around us. So um, how many of you have seen this picture before? It went like, it was like wicked viral on social media about two years ago. Um, so this is, I find it really helpful. So if you look at this, it's very clear. Equality is not the same thing as equity. So if you'll see on the left-hand side, equality means that everybody gets or receives the same thing, irrespective of your need, right? So here you've got like three people who want to watch this baseball game, and everybody got the same size box to stand on, but that doesn't mean that now everybody can see. The difference between equality and equity is that equity gives people what they need in order to succeed based on where they are based on the social constructs they exist in, based on what's happening in society, based on what is real in their lives around the challenges and the marginalization they experience, then we meet that based on the goal or the objective we want them to be able to achieve. It's a pretty significant difference. Um, it's also, that's why I also say like, in, while it's not on here, it's different than diversity, right? Diversity just means a variety of things or people in a particular space. But that does not, in fact, connote equity. And equality does not, in and of itself, connote equity. So when I talk about this, um, the, this is like the big meta framework for what I want to offer for us to have some conversation tonight to apply to your own life tonight. Is this new for any, and it's totally cool. Has anybody, is this for anyone in the room, this image is new, like you've not seen this before? Cool, so several folks. Awesome, I just think it's highly illustrative and really great. One thing that's missing, and there's a group I actually was just with um, in Oakland this week, the Center for Story-Based Strategy. One of the things that they've done, and maybe this will like blow the framework out of your mind, um, is that you know they said there's actually a panel that's missing. There's one, the equality piece assumes that the fence and the equity piece both assume that the fence will always be there. 
The idea of organizing for something different in the world is to, in fact, imagine a world where there is no fence. Right? But that's not where we are. That's not what's real right now. But it's also important for us to challenge our structures of knowing about what the possibilities are for creating change in the world. Is that are we always going to imagine that it's about equity and equality? Or are we also doing that on our way to imagining no fence at all? That's the vision. But that's also, I always say to folks, and that's not exactly where we are today. So um, a couple of ground rules. I always set ground rules when I work with folks about how we're going to spend, even if it's 10 minutes or two days together. Um, I call them my relationship agreements about what we will do and what we won't do. So we will explore and engage some content. We're going to reflect and apply it. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to blame and shame, and we're not going to avoid and derail and try to like not talk about power, because that's why we're here. And I'm only asking you to do it for 30 minutes. So you can leave and be like, that's the biggest load of crap I ever heard in my life. I'm not offended. Just hang with me for 30 minutes. So, um, but And there are some ways in which I'd like to offer that we do it. Um, if anybody loves a good cat meme like I do, get ready. <laughs> so the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to respect each other. And if you don't know why Aretha Franklin Kitty is wearing that, just Google the inauguration. <laughs> and you'll, Aretha Franklin and inauguration, you'll totally get it. Um, but that is just respect, a little, a little bit of respect. Treat one another the way you would want to be treated. Pretty basic. Another way that we will do our relationship agreement is to listen. To just do your best to listen. I am somebody who is like, oh, I'm going to look at you like I'm listening, but I'm like, in my head formulating my counter argument, which is shit. So like, don't do that. Don't do what I do. I'm working on it. I have a really great therapist. Um, but, like, but like, you know, just listen to each other. Do our best. We spend a lot of time in, in a society that, in fact, does not have us listen to each other ever. So this is a pretty important thing. The other thing is, I'm only asking you to speak for yourself. You don't have to speak for all the people in your racial identity group or your gender group or your class group or whatever that is. I'm only asking for each of us to offer our own experiences. And then we will see whether or not that illuminates some commonality. But I do not expect anybody to speak for the entire group in which you belong, of which we'll discover there are many identity groups that we belong to. So that's the one thing. Another thing we're going to do is just let's be good to each other. A little graciousness. We don't all have to love each other and be BFFs when we leave, but it's just to offer some spaciousness, some graciousness. We've never, I don't know who's had conversations like these before, but certainly this group as it is comprised this evening has never had this conversation together before. So I don't assume that everybody's in the same place or everybody has the same kind of willingness or vulnerability. That's not the expectation. It's just to be good to each other. And we don't have to agree. The other thing that I think is going to be helpful, especially when you do your self-reflection, is to be as vulnerable as possible. You don't have to like dig out every gory detail of your life. Um, but to really say, could I have an honest conversation with myself about my life and what the content is that lies before me to do some analysis about my community, about my work, about my relationships, my friendships, my partnerships, whatever that is, to have some willingness to just be vulnerable about that. So those are the key things via cats. Are there any questions? Are there, is there anything anybody has to add to be like, OK, now I'm, I'm down. I can do this. OK. So my request is that we all participate in maintaining this. I don't like to be the relationship police um, in groups so that we all choose willingly to take care of each other for the next little bit while we have the conversation. OK. 
So this whole conversation about intersectionality, who has, who has had conversations about intersectionality before? Okay, so that's like two-thirds of the room. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty exciting buzzword these days. I hear intersectionality a lot. Um, somebody once told me that I wasn't being intersectional, and then I asked him what he meant, and he couldn't explain, <laughs> he couldn't explain himself. So I was like, yes, I see how this works. Um, so one of the things that I want to do, um, and I often do in trainings or when I work with folks, is to be really clear. Like, do we, are we at least in agreement on a concept enough that we can have a conversation about whether or not we like all the parts and pieces of it? So I always tell folks, like, you need a shared definition or you need a shared container with people just to suss some things out. And so one of the things I want to offer to you is a way of thinking about intersectionality um, and what that means. So it's a big word. It's a sociological word. It's a word that for most people, people are like, whatever, I don't know what that means. So we're going to dig into like, what that really means. And I want to do it by sharing with you um, some learnings that I have received from uh, a woman by the name of Gloria Anzaldúa, who's not alive anymore. Has anybody ever done any reading or work with um, uh, to handle the name Gloria Anzaldúa's work? So Cecilia, yeah. So Gloria Anzaldúa, not alive anymore, um, was a queer Chicana feminist activist, um, incredible, incredible academic, um, who led a lot of work um, in the fe in feminist circles to diversify feminist circles, um, to bring to light what was missing in feminist circles, to talk about what it means to be queer Chicana and feminist, um, and all of what that means. And Chicana meaning a border person, Mexican-American, living on the borders. Um, and she literally did live on the border in Southern California. And she wrote a book, which is one of her most fam famous books. She also edited, co-edited a book called um, This Bridge Called My Back, which is a collection of books, of, of essays, if anybody's read that. But the book that really inspired me to think about power um, and that gave my life, gave me a sense of my own life and what power means and my identities was this book called Borderlands, La Frontera. And she writes in this book, which is incredible, um, she writes in this book about what it means for her to be somebody who is a bordered person. So I said already she's, she was Chicana. Um, but she talked a lot about like, what it meant for her to, to live both in the United States and in Mexico. What it meant for her to have access in the United States because she's a US citizen, but also to have family in Mexico who did not have access. What it meant for her to be an academic and have access to all of what academia means and to come from a family that did not have that kind of access. What it meant for her to identify as a woman. What it meant for her to identify as a queer person. What it meant for her in all of these places of her life to not only be a marginalized person, but to also be a person who had an incredible amount of access. And she discovered that her life was not just what it meant to be marginalized or oppressed as a woman or marginalized and oppressed as a queer person or as a person of color, that there were all these other spaces in her life that allowed her mobility and access and a whole lot of power and privilege. And so I read this um, when I was in college and I was like, this is incredible. This is great scholarship. This is great theory that I applied to myself. No. Um, until one day um, I was like in college, <laughs> in college, I was one of those really loud, know-it-all campus student organizers. Um, I know, shocking, right? Uh, and I was like, oh, I know everything. This is great. I did all this racial justice organizing on campus. Um, and we had done this big action on graduation. It was great. So you can imagine, like, 
We're fired up. I'm there with a bunch of my friends. We like do this big thing to shame the Board of Trustees at McAllister College about how they were doing all this horrible stuff to students of color and we didn't have access. It was a very high profile kind of public action. Um, and when we did those kinds of things, we would debrief them afterwards. So then, you know, we would like the core leadership of students would get together and we'd say, okay, how did it go? How was the strategy? What worked? What didn't work? So we did that. Um, and we went to the cultural house, which is like the PO people of color house, basically, like the, we called it the culture house. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, it's like sh grocery shopping in a particular aisle. Um, so, but we went there to debrief this big action. Um, and we were hanging out, it was great, it was all good. People started to leave and I was, I was one of the last two people there with my friend Chiedza. Chiedza um, is Nigerian, uh, identified at a, as a woman of color, identifies still as a woman of color. And we were student organizers there together and we've been doing a lot of anti-racism work on campus. And so we're just hanging out, chilling out, talking about how great things are. And she said, you know, I'm really glad that like you're still here because I've been wanting to have this a conversation with you. And I was like, okay, let's talk. We're like, in this, we're gonna plan the next action, what's gonna happen? Um, and she said, there's something that's really been bothering me and I really wanna share it with you. And I'm like, oh, she's gonna tell me about something um, and I'm gonna be a good friend and it's probably gonna be about somebody else, <laughs> not me. Um, and she says, you know, I want you to know that I really care about you. And I want you to know that I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a long time, but I haven't quite figured out how to have it. Um, and she's like, and it's about how we work together. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm like, stay connected, okay, tell me what's going on. And she said, I've been having some trouble with uh, working with you. And I was like, what, me? You're having trouble with me? How could this be? Uh, and she said, I'm really struggling because um, you sometimes come into a space and I experience you bringing a lot of stuff that I find disruptive in the space. Uh, and so I'm like, you know that feeling when somebody's talking to you and then your, 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 my, the outer part of your ear starts to get a little warm? So I was like, yes, my ears are warm, I'm listening. Um, I already told you that I'm like a right fighter and I wanna, I'm, like, I'm already like, oh, what am I gonna say next? Um, and she said, one of the things that I find really hard is that when we plan actions and we think about what risks there are to students, you never think about what it's like for international students. You only ever think about like, what you're allowed to do as a domestic student who's not at risk of being sent someplace else. Um, she said, the other thing that, that I really struggle with is that like, you don't ever think about how your straightness shows up in a space. Your heteronormativity shows up all the time. Uh, and I was like, what, really? Um, and so she, she listed a few other things and, um, and she was being really good to me. She's being a really good friend. I, however, was kind of like this. I was like, screw you, you don't know me. Like, who are you to talk to me about this? Like, I grew up poor, my family came as refugees, nobody even knows why we're here. I grew up, people like sprayed swastikas on our houses, you have no idea what my life was like. We were like poor, like government cheese poor, like gift baskets on the porch in the wintertime poor. You have no idea what that was like and what I'm like. I would say I was less generous than she was. <laughs> um, but what she did, and what I realized later, and we're still friends, what I realized later was that she was have, helping me have an encounter experience with myself around identities that I wasn't willing to acknowledge. So I had been like, built my whole activist life in my 20s as like the oppressed woman of color, the refugee, the like nobody talks about Asian Americans in the race construct, the race construct is binary, 
We could do a whole other workshop on how that's messed up, right? Like all of these kinds of things. That's what I had built my whole radical identity around. And I had not once acknowledged all of the places where that was not all that I was. That I had access and privilege in ways that showed up and oozed out all over the place and made life really hard for everybody else because all I could see was how shitty my life was and not the places where I had lots of access. This is like the exact illustration of what Gloria Anzaldúa talks about in her book. And this is what my friend Chiedza was asking me to see. And she's a really good friend because she asked me to see it. If she was not a good friend and she didn't care about me, she would have just not had a relationship with me anymore. And so my own fragility around that and my own um, defensiveness around that was not about her, that was about me and what I wasn't willing to admit about myself. It doesn't mean that I was not still a woman of color or a refugee who grew up really poor and had those identities and all of the real experiences of that. I also had all the real experiences of being a native English speaker and having access and being heterosexual and able-bodied, all of those things, and, and moving from being once poor to somebody who did not read as poor anymore. All of that was also happening. So I want you to think about this as a framework. Oh my God, is it really 7.50 already? Shit. <laughs> OK. Keep going. All right. Um, so I want you to think about this as a framework. That when Gloria Anzaldúa talks about this, identities, she talks about a center. Remember her book was called La Frontera, The Borderlands? There's a center in society, and around the, that center exists all of these other people and identities. And at the center, it's all about consolidating power, but consolidating power and access through giving people certain identities, right? So whiteness, maleness, being heterosexual, being cisgender, being um, English proficient, being documented in the United States, being a citizen, that's huge. What it means to be a Protestant Christian, right? And then later, like with JFK, we could throw Catholicism in there a little bit. Like all of these kinds of things are what exist at the center of society. Imagine it like a big vortex. And that's how power gets centralized. That's how power gets normalized. I often tell folks, like, when you think about this concept, think about it as, like, what's normal? Just describe what's normal. What do we say is normal? And if you can describe what's normal, you have described the identity that gives people who are normal, by that standard, access and power. You don't have, you didn't ask, nobody asked for it. A lot of us don't like it. A lot of us do. But you don't have to like it. You don't have to ask for it to get it because that's the way society is designed. So I want you to think about that as a center. And then outside of that center are what's called the borderlands. Any, everything that is abnormal, not normal, that has, that has less power or no power, systemically, individually, collectively, and in community. Um, so this is, that's the basic concept, just to help you visualize this. It, for those who do visualize, I drew a picture, because not everybody likes to look at that much text on a slide. Um, I find this really helpful. So if you think about society like this, here's the vortex of power. This is power. That's where people get sucked into. That's where whole identities get created. And there's a lot of centripetal force that tries to pull people into this. That's why there are things like um, assimilation, and acculturation, and people giving up their languages, and native foods, and traditional ways of being, and dress. It's not because people just don't like that anymore. It's because there's something about gaining access when you can get closer to the center. 
This is, the, this is what happens when we talk about power and identity and then behaviors that, em that emerge. And this whole construct works really well when people don't realize it's happening. <laughs> right? So like that you could be in the center and not ever know that, you centered, that you're somebody who was given access to the center. It doesn't make you a bad person. Some of my best friends are white guys. So don't worry about this. That was a joke. You can totally laugh about it. But it doesn't mean that people are bad people. It means that this is an illustration of what happens in society. And if we could stop for a moment and do an analysis, a really clear, what I call an ontological analysis. Ontology is the science of just observing and naming what is. Without blame, without shame, just to say, what is the landscape? You don't have to feel shitty about the landscape, but you have to describe it if you want to change it. This is, this is what happens. So I'll tell you, so when, when she had to ask me to have an encounter experience with myself, I imagined myself as somebody out here only as an Asian American person, as a refugee, as a woman, as somebody who was young, as somebody who was an orphan. All of this stuff, this is how I built my whole life, almost in a static way, as somebody who's only here. But what she was asking me to see was that like my language, what I can speak, puts me here. My education puts me here, right? All of this stuff, my citizenship status puts me here. All of this stuff was also part of what I had access to at the center. And if, right, so I told you all that I'm a, a grassroots organizer. If anybody knows a good grassroots organizer, we're always trying to collectivize power, build power with community in order to produce a different, more just outcome for our communities. If, here's the, here's the thing that I realized, if I was not admitting to the places where I had power, as an organizer, I had completely abdicate, abdicated my ability to leverage that power to do something different. So then I would be like, oh, well, you know, like my family didn't come as native speakers and I had to translate for my family when I was five, but I don't ever talk about how that's not what I do now, that I speak English quite well, and that, I, that could give me access in certain places to influence people with power too to wake up, to see the world differently, and then to use their power in a different way, I just gave it all up. Because all I wanted to see was myself as a borderlands person. It doesn't mean I'm not still a borderlands person in some respects. But it means that I'm also somebody who's pretty close to the center in other ways. So when we think about this, this is intersectionality. That's the heart of what intersectionality is. Not some theory, not something written in a book, but like when you look at your own life, you think about what it means to be somebody who exists in multiple places, with multiple identities, things pulling and tugging at each other all the time. Like the, the stress that it creates to be somebody who is marginalized because of your gender or your sexual identity or your class or your race or whatever that is. And who still has access because of lots of other things like your citizenship status or, your, or you know, maybe you're uh, on the gender spectrum that gives you all kinds of access. Like I think about that all the time, right? That I am a woman of color, um, first generation in my family to go to college, all of that stuff. This is a really marginalizing identity. And I have the right to be married and sit by my husband's bedside if he dies in a hospital. I have that access. That's still a privilege. It doesn't cancel out the other things. I am 100% of all of those things. There's some theology in there, isn't there? Like Christian theology. Um, that you can be 100% of everything. 
and all of that is real. So um, what I'd like to have you all do is a little bit of a turn and talk, because I said, OK, I'm going to do this teaching piece. <laughs> it's 757. Um, but I want you to turn to folks, to one another, and just talk. Where are you? Where, what identities put you on this map? Are there identities that put you towards the middle, towards power? Remember, this is not about shame. This is about just naming what is. You didn't, we didn't have to ask for it. We didn't have to agree to it. And in fact, systems of oppression never ask anybody to agree to shit. They just put you in a place, and you don't realize it's happening. And then you learn all the behaviors that correlate with your place. So I'm asking you to say, not whether or not you like it, but are there places in your life where you are at the center? And are there, are there things that you get because of that identity? Maybe you've never thought about it before. And then are there places of you that are in the borderlands? Whatever that is, because of how you grew up, or who you are, or your family, or whatever other statuses that you have. So I want you to turn and chat with each other for just a few minutes. I would really like you to keep it to dyads if you can. Please just two, because we have so little time. And it's really only going to be like three or four minutes, just to get you practicing this in your own life. All right? The slide is here. Any questions, comments that people want to make before we jump in? It was a lot, and like, we don't have a ton of time, but in case there's any point where somebody really needs clarity on something. OK. Find your pair, please. Ideally, somebody you don't know, and get started. I'd like to invite you to wrap up. Wrap up, please, and come back to the large group. Come on back to the large group, please. If you can hear me, clap once. If you can hear me, clap twice. If you can hear me, clap three times. There you go. Good organizers, everybody in the room. OK, so um, I'd like to just get a taste of how those conversations went. Maybe just like two or three folks. We don't have a lot of time. But generally, what I like to do is small group and then much fuller group debrief. But we, we don't have the, the space for that. But I would like to hear from a couple of folks just what was it like to have that conversation? That's it. What was it like? Maybe you want to tell us how it went. I would like for there to be people of color and white people responding. Um, that would be really great. If anybody feels so inclined to share, you don't have to. But it's a raise your hand or just shout it out if there's space. Can folks hear? OK. So that, that illuminates that power structures remain the same, but our identities are actually much more fluid than we think they are. So that's a really good example, right? That like I am now very clearly middle income. Some, most days of my spouse, middle class, but, um, but definitely middle income. Like we're probably like two paychecks away from not having enough if that were to happen. But like, if we can maintain, we're good. But, um, but that's very different than the mentality that we had as children. So for example, we used to like, fill, my husband also grew up really poor, poorer than I. Um, and we used to fill our, food, our fridge with food just because we could. And then 80% of it would go bad until we realized that what had happened was that like our identities had, our outward identities had changed, but our poor kid mentality had not yet caught up. So like to look at an empty fridge 
and have a nice si a good sized bank account was like it was was very confusing but that's a really good example of fluidity so that we could be having those fluid struggles in our own lives but the construct and how we had access that was changing it had nothing to do with whether or not i let the food rot in my fridge right and so i've also worked with folks who are like um i was doing this training and a woman said you know one of the things i realized was she said, she's a white woman, blonde, conventionally pretty. She's like, all of these things gave me lots of access. And then I got cancer, and I lost all my hair, and I lost all kinds of weight, and I became somebody who was viewed as disabled, and that gave me a different place in the construct. But she said, but then I could, you know, she went into remission, and she's like, and then I was able to go back to what I was. But the, the, the construct doesn't change. We do. And if we're not aware of those things, we don't know, one, how to address them when, when we encounter them in our personal lives, much less how to address what the systemic impacts are of our access or lack of access at any given time. Reflections. Yes, please. Thank you for that. That's a, I appreciate that reflection, which is, one, a very vulnerable thing to share about your own experience just in this exercise. And also illuminates the fact that like, when we're put into this construct, this borderlands and center construct, we not only get all kinds of messages about who we should understand ourselves to be, but also who everybody else is supposed to be. Right? So that doesn't mean that if we just stop assuming and making assumptions about each other, that real powers of oppression aren't happening. Those are happening. Like I can assume lots of things about my white spouse. He's still a white guy who walks around the world getting a lot of shit just for being a white guy. And that's, he would say that himself, so don't be, I'm not offending him, right? But like, but that's also on me to think about if I saw him walking down the street, this person I'm married to and I wasn't married to him and I didn't know him, would I know that he grew up eating like ketchup sandwiches and that that shaped his whole worldview? Would I know that his grandparents, while he's a white guy walking down the street, were prisoners of war and were captured by the Nazis and tortured? Would I know that? I wouldn't know that necessarily because there's so little time that I have in society to make an impressionistic assessment based on all of this and then to figure out where I move and where he will move. So, you know, that, that, that's, the, that's the, the conflict or the dichotomy or the real challenge, which is how do we be real with one another about our full human experiences while also acknowledging that some of those identities give some of us a whole lot of power and privilege that others don't have. That's all happening at the same time. And if we can build a really good intersectional analysis, we can hold that dichotomy. We can see that. We can have a really good structural systemic conversation that isn't intended to hurt anybody if we identify that you have power and privileges I don't have. And I can also hold the places in your life that were really hard. I, you, that all can happen at the same time. And when I think about this in terms of race, we don't have, I would like you to just think about these questions. We won't do another turn and talk. Because the point of this night was to not just have a big conversation about intersectionality, but also to say, then what happens when we look specifically at race? What happens when we try to do racial justice work or racial equity work in the world, and we don't talk about gender, and we don't talk about patriarchy, and we don't talk about colonialism, and we don't talk about militarism, right? Then our anti-oppression work becomes really oppressive then our feminist work becomes really racist if we don't have a conversation about why there was the need for a womanist movement in the first place. Right? That like all of these things, if we can't think holistically about it, our work is less effective and our work is less transformative 
and the movement isn't going to happen well. Or we're going to try to build movement work in all sorts of little pockets instead of trying to get real with each other and have a conversation about power. That I'm not a bad person because I have power as a cisgender person. But it's a real problem if I don't say that that's real. Or if I pretend that that's not somehow in the room every time I walk in. And if I'm not aware of it, it's going to not, I can be aware of it and it's still going to hurt people. It's going to hurt people even more if I choose not to be aware of it. If I pretend like that's not a real thing. And that's true in lots of different ways. I can ruin a table in a hot second with my own power and privilege that I won't deal with. And then I get mad at somebody for pointing it out at me. Which, which, which by the way, my therapist would say is really manipulative. <laughs> right? Like, oh, I'm hurt because you pointed out something that's real and I don't like it, so I'm going to be all hurt so you can't talk to me about it. So then it's about my feelings instead of me getting real about some shit that I didn't create, but that's real. Right? So that's what, like, you know, have, have any of you ever had challenges around conversations around, like, white fragility or male fragility? That fragility stuff is manipulation. <laughs> to get you to stop having a conversation I don't want to have about myself. That's really what it is. And if we could suspend the narrative of being a bad person, then we could have a real conversation about what that means. And be, be generous when somebody comes to me upset about a lifetime of experiences with people who look like me, and I can say, that's not about me, but I got my own stuff here too. That, that's what an intersectional practice would look like. That's what an intersectional discipline and behavior would look like. So, um, so that, I appreciate you all letting me take a little bit of extra time. Um, so really, I mean, this, the now what is just like, try it on. Try this analysis on. Get Gloria Anseldua's book and read it. Like, figure out what, what does this look like? If I were to just imagine this in my life, how does it show up? Do I not ever think about my race? Maybe there's a reason why. Do I not ever think about my gender privilege? Maybe there's a reason why. Maybe I should start thinking about it. Maybe I should start looking for it intentionally and figure out where it shows up in places that I would never even think to look for it. And then I want, one of the things too is why I ask for you all to imagine what's hopeful right now, especially around racial justice work, is to imagine. Like, we bring into being the things we imagine. Could you imagine what your community would be like if people really had these conversations about power without running out of the room, without getting all up in my feelings and crying and making you stop? Like all of, if, that, if we could suspend those things and have real conversations about how our communities could be different, how your relationships with your friends and your family and your spouses, all the hard, tight places where we don't talk about this stuff, if there was spaciousness to talk about it, what would be different? What could be? How much more effective could we be? our religious and spiritual communities, our grassroots communities, the places where we work, the place where you organize, your home, with your, your relationship with your children and your spouse or your partners, what would that be like? Because if you can imagine it, then you can start saying, what would I do to get there? But if we never imagine it, there's no steps to get anywhere. You don't have to think about that. And then the final thing, for those of you who journal or create art or create things to help you process, one of the things I've really encouraged people to do is Get a journal and just write this stuff down. When you see something, when you see power and privilege related to identity that you never saw before, write it down. See what shows up. Keep a journal of it because part of this is also not just a practice in um, social theory or critical race theory. This is an invitation to actually start to see your life differently and to see the places where you could do something differently. And so, like we, you know, we li we live in a society that has a 
invites us to let our, let our like social analysis muscles atrophy, like just kind of go weak and limp. And you don't just wake up one morning being able to run a marathon. You got to train for that shit. Like you got to do stuff. You've got to, I mean, unless you're my father-in-law, which is a whole other story. Um, but like, you know, you, it takes some work to build the muscles to do that. It takes some time and some effort to build a new neural pathway, literally, to start seeing things that you never saw before. That's, that's what it takes. So I would encourage you to do that if you feel so inspired. And then the other thing is like, <laughs> more cat memes. <laughs> Especially these days, I think it's, re it's really hard to imagine that shit could be good. <laughs> it's really hard to imagine that like we could make something different happen. Um, but you can, you could totally do it, chase the red laser. Like it's possible to catch it, <laughs> but we have to imagine that it's that it's possible. Um, so it's more than just saying, "Oh, I like the theory. Oh, I recognize that this is a construct," but like it requires some practice, actual doable things that then lead us to a new framework, new ways of being in relationship, new ways of being together, new ways of collectivizing power, new ways to act together to produce something different. So that's that. If you wanna catch me, I'm around. Um, I'm here in town, and I'm, clear, I'm working with Wendy and Nick in the open table, and I do trainings in town. Um, I'm a local. You might find me drinking at some place or having a coffee. I don't just drink alcohol, um, but I do. And, but no shame if you don't. It's all good. Um, but, so, but I'm around, and like, I am an accessible community member, um, and I really mean it. Like, I am spending a lot of time these days deliberating about what it means to have a place in community and what it means to be doing work in, in community. So I'm here, and we're here. Uh, so like this is not the last conversation. It doesn't have to be the last conversation. So thank you.